0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Fusion GPS, it was a small D.C. research company that took on mythic proportions in the Washington political wars for their deep dive into Donald Trump and his Russian connections, including the notorious Steele dossier. Fair to say their work helped explode the story of Russia's role in the 2016 election. But who are these guys? Beyond the right wing caricature of them as partisan purveyors of smut against Trump, what is the real story and the story of their research into Trump? Well, Fusion GPS founders Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritsch tell their story in their new best selling book, Crime and Progress. And they sat down with me to talk about who they are, what they've done and how they went from anonymity to become a major target of the president, his supporters in Congress, and conservative media. Here's that conversation recorded before a live audience at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. Thank you. Peter Fritsch and Glenn Simpson, welcome. You know, uh, I'm an old journalist. And the one thing I know about journalists is they don't really like to become the story. And investigative journalists, in particular, don't like to be, become the story. In fact, I know you're doing book signings. I expect it's in disappearing ink. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I do want, because there is this specter out there of Fusion GPS as this sort of ominous uh, uh, intruder on our politics and so on. I want to give people a sense of who you guys are and, and particularly how you came to this point. So, Peter, let's start with you. you you're from New England. That's right, uh, yeah. you, you're, Your dad was a, a preacher. He was. Uh, and you moved around as families of, of religious yeah, leaders I, are often like military families. They just move from posting
1: posting. A little bit. I grew posting. up in Maine, uh, suburban New York City, uh, and then suburban Boston. Until getting into this game, and was journalism something that was talked about? How did this interest grow? Well, no, my first job out of college, if you want to go back that far, was actually I want to go back farther. Okay, (laughs) Um, you know, my dad was a uh, something of a public intellectual in his way. He used to have his sermons broadcast in Portland, Maine, a lot of different places. So he, um, you know, he was he prized uh, rigorous thought and writing. Um, so, I guess that some of that rubbed off on me. Uh, after, after college, I ended up working at a law firm where I was a colossal failure as a paralegal. Uh, remember had working. you thought that you were gonna maybe become a lawyer? <clears throat> I had no better idea, so I didn't really know what uh-huh. to do, and I got a job. Um, I was promptly invited to leave after about a year and started writing for the South End News, which is a giveaway in Boston, um, writing feature stories and parlayed that into a staff job at a small daily. Um, And then, you know, went on from there.
0: You both took traditional routes to journalism, but much different routes. Uh, You you took the Washington route, started your life in, in, in Philly, Right, suburban area. Philadelphia, mm-hmm.
2: and uh, and then I transferred eventually into George Washington University in my sophomore year, which is in Washington. Where were you before? I was at the University of Delaware, mm-hmm. which is in um, a, a small town in Delaware called Newark, and mm-hmm. it was um, it was a big uh, agricultural school. You could study animal husbandry and big football team and all that. And um, I was decided I was more interested in sort of urban life. Didn't know what I wanted to do, but I decided to switch to a city school and. GW would have me, so I went there. And then kind of fell into writing, basically because I w- loved reading fiction, and that's what Ernest Hemingway did when he was young. He was a journalist. So I thought, I'll try that too, because I didn't have anything to write about if I was going to go ahead and be a writer. So I see. I went into it for the but practice. But not necessarily a journalist. I did not dream of being a journalist. I wanted to be a novelist, actually. But then I realized I wasn't up to that job, and that journalism was at least as much fun. Yeah. I fell in love with it when I started to practice it.
0: Journalism, was that discussed in your home? Not
2: really. My father was an engineer, um, and my mother worked in a, as a secretary. Other than being sort of aware of people who read the newspaper and were interested in contemporary events, you know, I mean, I remember Watergate. I was 10 years old when that happened. My parents were very interested in that. We sat around and watched the hearings. Um, but, you know, he yeah, was there's going to be some new... there's. New hearings coming up now. Yep. I don't know if you... Yep. Yeah. And so. My kids are old enough that they can actually understand what's happening, um, <laughs> as opposed
0: to me. There was an incident when you were in high school. A, a, you had a party. Yep. Someone had too much to drink, ran out, and got hit by a car. Yep. The reason I ask you about it is it got covered yep. as a story. Yep. As you evolved as a journalist, were you impacted by that experience of seeing how things get covered and how they affect those who are
2: involved? Yes. I I wouldn't say, you know, very consciously, but I think that experience and uh, the experience of dealing with people as human beings over many years definitely affected the way I treated them. No matter what you think of somebody, they usually love their spouse and their children and um, in most respects are, you know, decent loving human beings. Even people that we're not particularly fond of, like, you know, Donald Trump appears to have love his children. Um, and and so, you know, you sort of, having been at the other end of that in the early part of my life, know what it's like to be written about and judged uh, and depicted and how painful that can be and how unfair it can be, no matter what you've done.
0: Right. Yeah. I When I was a kid, my best friend, I opened up the local newspaper, I must have been 13 years old, there was my best friend's dad, indicted for embezzlement. He was a small-time accountant, and he went off to prison. And this young man fell apart, and it, it changed his life. And it was something that I always carried around with me as a journalist, that there are other people, it isn't just the person you're writing about. Uh, and that's particularly important when you're doing the kind of work uh, that you do. So. You, you also had a terrible accident when you were in college and you broke your neck. Yep. Later in life, you had spinal cancer. I don't want to ask you about your bad luck. It's <laughs> good luck. I survived it all. Right. Well, my, I guess my, my question is later when you like, you guys have been under terrible pressure over the last four years. Is it part of your makeup to say, you know what, I've cheated death twice. So there are worse things than this.
2: I definitely have said that I'm living on bonus time. And so um, there is some truth to that. Uh, I ran into my surgeon by accident uh, over the summer and he said you should be dead by now. And I said, that's not what you told me when you <laughs> there, took the tour out A few of other way. people have been saying <laughs> that too, I think. <laughs> uh, and he said, yeah, well, of course I wouldn't tell you that, but most people who had what you had uh, only last for five or 10 years. And so it's wow. like 12 for me or something. Uh-huh. So, um, so anyway, I got to watch my kids grow up, which was the most important thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: You guys, so you became quite a phenom in your early days in journalism in Washington, doing public records research. And Diving deep into investigations that's a long way from Hemingway. Yeah,
2: true uh, It mostly since. I when I came of age, um, it was uh, an era of scandals in Washington um, I did manage, you know, the the remark you made about the traditional journalism path I would quibble with a little bit The very traditional path is to go off and cover the police in a small town in Tennessee. Well, no, I think
0: Peter's experience is the traditional experience.
2: I started at the Hyde Park Herald over here. I I sort of lucked out and managed to stay in Washington um, uh, without ever having to go out and do that kind of field stuff. Um, But anyway, so I was in Washington studying uh, journalism. I got a job at The Washington Times as a copy boy, basically. And it was the Iran-Contra scandal, and I made it as I made it into journalism. Then it was the Savings and Loan scandal, and that scandal was all about politicians taking money from banks to go easy on the banks. And so you had to learn how the banking system worked, where the records were, um, how the political finance system worked, what was the interplay between politics and banking regulation. And so that was how I became a, a bit of a nerd on those subjects. And then it, it sort of coincided with the era of financial engineering becoming such a big presence in our world more generally. Michael Milken, junk bonds, Enron, all of these things eventually. You know, so I, I just happened to be there sort of in the early years of that and um, you know, got into it. Peter, what did he miss that you gained from having to
1: schlep
0: to city council meetings in small town America what? and do the kind of reporting that you've done?
1: Well, I, I don't want to overstate my experience there. I, I, I did that for a couple of years. And then I um, truncated the process. And I figured, well, I got a job from the Lawrence Eagle Tribune and the great Dan Warner. May he rest in peace. I believe he passed away. Um, and I thought I actually got bitten by the overseas bug when I was in grad school. And I ended up winning a scholarship to go to Germany and Eastern Germany um, in 1988 and 1989. Did that. Um, was there a few months before the wall fell. Precisely nobody predicted, predicted that would happen. Yeah. And then I uh, had to write my way uh, back from visiting a girlfriend in Canada by publishing feature stories about East Berlin. So I decided I wanted to go overseas and found, my, found a way to do that through a, the old joint venture uh, between the Associated Press and Dow Jones called AP Dow Jones, which is f- covering financial news overseas. And they sent me to Mexico in 1991. Just when NAFTA was happening, <clears throat> yep, I, I covered all the protests after and after the Shafta <laughs> was my favorite of them all. Uh-huh. But yeah, I was uh, there in Mexico for a lot of those negotiations, and I remember quite well because we specialized in financial news. Um, you know, coaching up as a young reporter, the New York Times, Washington Post people who wanted to know, you know, what the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Law was mm-hmm. and what that actually, why that was important, um, and why the side agreements were so important. So.
0: So you guys yeah, both arrived at the Wall Street Journal at the, about the same time, in the mid-90s. And truth be told, you didn't like him very much. We were I, in the same initiation <clears throat> class.
1: You, yeah, what no, does it so, happen? Do you get so a the, ring?
0: Do you get a, no, a decoder the,
1: ring? Or a? So the new reporters, they used to bring them to New York um, from wherever they were hired. Uh, and the culmination of a day of inculcation indoctrination was you know, dinner with the great Peter Kahn, um, et cetera, who, uh, you know, would smoke a cigar in your face and talk about how great he was as a correspondent of Vietnam. Um, And Glenn, Glenn was able to settle right into a seat and drink whiskey and smoke uh, cigars with Peter Kahn. And I thought, geez, this guy is like quite a piece of work. Um, (laughs) um, A big part of being a reporter is getting people to, like you, and convince them that you belong to be there, um, and so that was that's a skill. But
0: it took him a few years to get you to like him. You you guys worked together finally in uh, right after nine eleven.
1: A, a little bit. I, I went right after I was the Mexico bureau chief when that happened. Um, I ended up going with Danny Pearl. I uh, yeah. Ended up losing his his life. life yes to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who is Osama bin Laden's number 2. Um, what was that like to lose a close friend <clears> and colleague? <clears throat> that was terrible. Glenn was actually a better friend with Danny than I was because he was, was in the yeah. Washington We Bureau. worked together
2: in Washington for uh, a number of years and we were. But it was uh, you know, it was heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. It's
0: important to remember, you know, because uh, so many people put their lives
1: on the line out there to, to, to report and uh, right. So Glenn was, Glenn was, you know, uh, I I want to correct the record a little bit. I actually did like him right away when I actually got to know him Um, because that's you could almost be in politics. um, (laughs) I did buy this jacket. Well, well, uh, well, so I ended up being the guy who was going to the Hawala money exchange houses in Rawalpindi in Pakistan and interviewing the guys with the help of a translator, of course, the actual heroes of a lot of foreign correspondents. And Glenn was uh, the guy who was the expert in money laundering, who was able to um, marry that up with a lot of- So you were trying to trace funding of terrorism. I was trying to do whatever I could figure Mm -hmm. out to do. I mean, it was a jump ball. Right. And what happened with
2: me was because I was a banking and finance geek, um, you know, on September 12th, 2001, I was drafted as the new uh, terrorism financing reporter, uh, yeah. and so I had to learn. Probably never a title that the Wall Street Journal
0: expected. Brand to new,
2: a brand new beat. Yep. Yeah, and I didn't know the first thing about Islam or terrorism. I mean, a little, but you know, I had to learn an entirely new subject. Got sued a bunch, um, and I had some uh, really ugly. Why
0: is that? You there were four lawsuits, all related to your terrorism coverage. One later when you guys were working together in Europe. Right. Uh, in Paris, we,
1: we won the case.
2: Um, you know, I mean, when you're writing about billionaires, oligarchs, well, in these cases, they were Saudi and Middle Eastern oligarchs. Um, uh, if you dare to, you know, uh, raise any sort of question about whether they've done something improper, they come after you with lawyers and endless buckets of money. It's pretty scary. And you guys
0: got together. You were the bureau chief, the northern European bureau chief in Brussels. Why did you go to Europe? Why did I was, you leave Washington?
2: You know, I mean, I, I had the, always had the travel book, too, and I'd always tried to get out of Washington, and I couldn't get transferred for years and years. And it was one scandal after another, and then they put me on Bill Clinton, and, of course, his whole presidency was a scandal. You know, it was like four, one scandal after another. And so finally, toward the end of the Clinton presidency, they finally agreed to let me go to Brussels, mm-hmm. and um, that's my reward for having been chained to Bill Clinton for years. And, years. and you? And my reward was inheriting
0: Clinton.
1: And now and getting chained to him. <laughs> and so you were became his editor. Yeah, I'd moved there from, uh, in 2006 uh, it, from Singapore, where I was yeah. based doing South and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And Northern Europe is the fancy title you get when they fire the Germany bureau chief, because they're downsizing and yeah. create one bureau chief in brussels i see yeah.
2: and that i had argued that it was a good place to cover terrorism from and it was it was, um, it was great a lot of jihadis running around europe and it's closer to the middle east um, and then so i continued to write about that subject as well as russian organized crime was i added that to my portfolio because that was an emerging issue and in the course of doing a story that Peter edited, I got myself indicted in France for uh, criminal libel yeah. under the Napoleonic Code, I <laughs> uh, had to stand. I, I
0: think the, I think he's kind of putting the whole thing on you here, but uh...
2: <laughs> yeah, I was acquitted, so I'm going to take credit for my own work.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> you both obviously love journalism, but you 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 left first of uh, the Wall Street Journal and it was after Rupert Murdoch bought the journal.
2: What was your thinking? What was your concern? I was in my mid-40s and looked around at people in their mid-50s and 60s who are in journalism and a lot of them are just hanging on, waiting for you know, the pension to kick in and don't look like they're having that much fun. Um, I could have stayed it, done it for the rest of my life and been very happy. But the business was changing, and um, uh, Murdoch was sort of the leading edge of the journalistic downturn. And uh, they became less interested in my investigative stories, particularly when they concerned <laughs> oligarchs like Rupert Murdoch. Generally, Why was that? I don't know. <laughs> generally, they were less interested in the kind of complex yarns that I did, too, which tended to get you sued. And Murdoch was, <clears throat> doesn't like being sued. And, and in one of the few remarks he ever made to me, I, I was introduced to him as the guy who had beaten the... the evil Saudis and all these lawsuits. And he said, well, they sued us, too, at the Times of London, but I just fixed it. And, you know, it's true. They just settled it. So, you know, so it wasn't that I'd, I disagreed with this politics, although I do. Um, it would have been not a problem working for a conservative, as long as they were honest. What do or, you think of the coverage
0: they're doing now, the investigative well, work they're doing? I think the now. pendulum has swung. Yeah.
1: And, it, you know... We John Perry would great work, yeah. writing about Theranos, for example. Um, I mean, yeah.
2: There's always my suspicion that they would feel the absence of investigative journalism as a real, you know, something that, that is so valued in American press and media that they
1: were going to need to restore it. My take on it is slightly different, and Glenn won't disagree with me, but you know, the journal was a great place to work as a journalist because it was always a second read. If you live in Boston, you get the Boston Globe, they'll do your sports weather and carry the wires, mm-hmm. etc. The journal was a second read, so it actually was a greater home for enterprise sort of work because they didn't need to do that other they didn't have kind to show up and cover the hurricane or the mudslide right mm-hmm. and so when brand a a and b were doing that the journal could do something else so that was conducive to a lot of enterprise work um, you know, I likened being in a foreign bureau to working in kind of a medieval guild where you would work on this one thing that you did really, really well. Mm-hmm. And when that, that went away with Murdoch, and you can argue about the commercial choice, right? But he wanted to be a first read mm-hmm. and compete with this paper circling the drain in Houston and wherever else. So, or the New York Times and in the USA Today. Yeah. And that's, that's not an illegitimate choice. Um, it just isn't that if you are you know, trained to work and think a different way it was just less challenging and less rewarding. Right.
0: So, so you guys, so he talked you out of, <clears throat> he talked you out of journalism and into this
2: idea well, of forming Well, so to finish the story, the reasoning, so I thought about what I really liked about journalism, and I, and I realized it wasn't the glory, and it wasn't going on TV, or it was sort of what you were saying about not being the story. You know, that part of journalism, being a talking head, that just didn't appeal to me, and the part that I really loved was the actual you know, pursuing curiosities and understanding new subjects and that sort of thing. So I started. I decided to try to see if I couldn't replicate that little world that I had built for myself at the journal as a business. And the reason I thought it might have appeal as a business is because by that time, um, a lot of my sources were uh, private investigators, well-paid lawyers, all kinds of people who, you know, I could see there was money in research and information and that, you know, if they weren't, newspapers weren't gonna be providing that kind of stuff, then people, some people would be willing to pay for it, and so I gave it a go and um, decided that I needed to make a bigger business of it. After I tried it and fig- found out that it was probably going to work, and at that point I did persuade Peter. I said, "This is going to this is going to work." So you formed this thing called Fusion GPS, which, when you think about it,
0: it sounds like something out of a James Bond movie, uh, with a big gleaming headquarters and so on. But you guys were on top of a restaurant or something, right? Yep. Uh, you two guys, you were building desks. Uh, it wasn't the glamorous. Uh,
2: we started out on top of a bar, and then we moved to on top of an <laughs> Asian restaurant. Um, now we're on top of a Starbucks. And <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: low overhead, you know, we put, we put all our effort into the work, David.
0: Uh huh. That's good. Describe the kinds of work that Fusion GPS
1: did apart from the work we're about to talk about, yeah, the the work we we do, uh, you know, we're kind of infamous for the work we actually don't do, yes. which is the Cristiel stuff, um, which is a adjunct I would say, and a, and a rare adjunct to the stuff we actually do, which the famous you, dossier, the dossier, which which, uh, you know, our our sort of bread and butter is heavy document-driven um, reporting and, and writing. Um, so you know, we get a lot of work from people like law firms who have complicated matters. And you know, they can pay, a client can pay associate attorneys six, $700 an hour, and they're typically younger people who actually aren't that experienced in open source record collection. So you know, if you spend a lifetime in journalism trying to get information without the benefit of subpoena power or a badge, you get pretty clever at it. Um, you know, I had a lot of experience overseas doing that. Glenn had a lot of experience here doing that. So we put that together, and um, you know, Found hired a board. lot of hired a lot of clever people.
0: One of the things about journalism is you always feel virtuous, like you're riding the white horse or whatever. And then you know, when you leave, sometimes it becomes a little. The choices become harder. Um, I mean, I learned that in politics. Um, not everyone I worked for was Barack Obama. You guys work for, for example, Theranos is probably uh, the most pronounced example. I think everybody's familiar with the firm and their difficulties. I don't want to go into the details of that. I know you were basically doing competitive research for them. So we should it's- note that. But, but the real question is, was that an adjustment
1: to say to yourselves, well, you know, it's a living. Well, I'll address that one just because I worked a lot on that, yes. and, and Glenn can give you the 35,000 view of it. I mean, in the case of Theranos, this is actually a very good example. Um, we were working for a law firm in that case, Boyce Schiller, write mm-hmm. about this in, in, our, in our book. Um, and they asked us to look at the existing duopoly in blood testing. So if your doctor orders a blood test, you go to a Quest or a lab court typically on the ground floor of the building. And so we ended up looking and examining a lot of the Kitam whistleblower suits against those firms for price fixing, et cetera, and found that there was quite a story there. It was and a it, virtuous assignment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was actually a journalistically, and this is you know where I'm gonna kick it to Glenn. I mean, the bar for the work is, is this kind of an inquiry we would have undertaken as journalists mm-hmm. without fear or favor or that kind mm-hmm. of thing? And so that's kind of how we structure Intake, I guess, for lack of a better word.
2: Right, and so most of what we do are things that we would have done as journalists, and I think journalists are a bit holier than now on this subject, given that they work with all kinds of people that they don't approve of, and take things from them, and do things that benefit them. And so there's a bit of a hypocrisy there, Having said that, there's no question that you. Wait,
1: wait. What do you mean by that? Rudolf Giuliani has accepted. A lot of journalists have accepted massive payments in kind from Rudolf Giuliani in terms of information. Oh, I see. Right.
2: So you know, you're you're investigating criminal A, right? Who do you go to find out about this guy? from, From you know, who do you ask? Criminal B is frequently the answer, and you don't have to approve of criminal B their character or whatever to do business with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you're gonna do business with them because mm-hmm. that's how you get your story. And that's, a lot of the Russia work is something like that, as it, there's a parallel there. Uh, but it is true that you, know, you wear the white hat when you're a journalist and you generally are trying to hold politicians and uh, executives accountable. Um, and you try to do things in the public interest, and that's what you think you're, you're doing, and that's a special kind of mission, and it's you know it's something I really believe deeply in. That sort of self-image of ourselves, we talk about this in the book, I mean, you know, we haven't really shed that self-image. Um, we talk about there comes a moment in the book where you know, we realize we're now being depicted as these horrible gunslingers who work for all kinds of money-grubbing yeah. characters. No, and, I've heard all this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, it's—it's a—I it, have to say—is a, it's a bit of an epiphany. Um, you know, that your self-image of yourself really needs some correction, and that you know, the reality is that you know, you're not a, a white hat anymore. You know, you're a consultant, and. You know, not everybody that you work for is, you know,
1: pristine, you know. um, But what we sell is a methodology that is applicable to the situation. And if you do your work honestly and with integrity and professionalism, you know, it works out. Right. You didn't
2: do much politics. Well, Uh, no, we do not. We also don't don't do criminal cases. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, uh, civil disputes, Uh, Civil disputes, you can't tell who the bad guy is until the dispute is over, frequently. Um, But uh, anyway, so we stay away from criminal stuff.
0: We're at the Institute of Politics here, so I don't know what it means when I say you didn't do much politics, and you said, and we don't do criminal work either. So
2: uh, but, uh, well, so let's, but, let's, let me correct that a little bit. So we're in Washington, right? Mm-hmm. So everything is political. What we really didn't do a lot of was campaigns. Campaigns. And, and, the, and that's right? what I'm talking and the about. And reason, the reason for that is kind of a, a mix of business and professional. As you probably know, the research part of campaigns is a low-end world where there's a lot of volunteers, a lot of low-paid, you know, go-getter types who collects old quotes and newspaper clippings and that sort of thing, and and much of the Oppo world is is just something. It's not a business we're interested in. But you did get retained. You wrote about it, so I can say
0: it uh, in 2012 to unravel uh, Mitt Romney's complicated financial dealings. That right. was so. so and that you was, actually got sued around that one as
2: well. <laughs> kind of, we got subpoenaed. I think, but um, yeah, uh, we third party subpoenaed. You know, we don't. Uh, talk about our confidential matters, so we didn't comply with the subpoena, and then we had to litigate that. But Mm -hmm. that was a different matter in that it was a very interesting assignment involving someone who had a very complex financial background, a long history of sort of opaque dealings and questionable tax structures and that sort of thing. So it was interesting, whereas a lot of the other work in in the campaign area frequently isn't, but it was also because they were willing to pay our rates. And so we philosophically believe that you get what you pay for, and a lot of people won't pay for good research in campaigns, and you know I mean we'll sell you good research if you'll pay our bills because we can't do good work if you're not willing to pay you know we need staff we got to gather documents
1: yeah it's, it's also it's very labor labor
2: intensive yeah so
1: go ahead well, I was just going to say you know Bain Capital was running for president in 2012 right that is so there were a they were disputing that myriad <laughs> Well, they'd be wrong because uh, you know there were there were hundreds of investee companies being capital and Mitt Romney were invested in. He became wildly wealthy of the uh, off of the sale of the Italian Yellow Pages. Well, so the typical opposition. I didn't even research, know you could
0: get wildly wealthy off the sale. Neither did we. Neither did we. We were amazed. Well, <laughs> anyway, the,
1: the point is, you know, that's a complicated inquiry, right? Yeah. To actually parse that deal and understand what that is you know the carried interest whereby hedge fund wealthy hedge fund individuals and just get be clear
0: through. some of these stories end up in the hands of journalists who then follow up on your <clears throat> presumably don't take all your work wholesale they go and check your work and right add so to that's it so on. that's
2: something that we keep trying to correct the record on because of course we're depicted as you know some sort of uh, black PR firm we don 't really do PR and we don 't sign contracts to sell stories to journalists. Uh, we do research um, and we talk to reporters when they 're covering the subjects that we 're working on and they 're interested in them and because we come from that community yeah you know they, they make their way to us sometimes, but we 're not out there like a, some, some like a campaign press secretary who's pitching a certain line about the other side, that sort of thing, We've, that, that's
0: not really what There's we There are some did. great investigative reporters in this country, and you know most of them, and they view you as a resource if they know you're, you've got
1: information. Absolutely, and, and the goal is to, um, if anything, is to sh- share information and have them build upon it. So let, let's, t-
0: let's jump ahead to 2015. You had an inspiration that there might be some business In looking at Donald Trump, why was
2: that? I guess because of my years in politics, I remembered the Pat Buchanan when he ran against George W. Bush and wounded him so badly that they lost the next election. And there's this George H. W. Bush, right? There's this historical fear in the Republican Party of a nativist uh, guy like Donald Trump coming along and capturing the party and then running it into the ground. And so. Uh, I guess that was in the back of my mind, as someone might pay us to look into this guy. He's, and did you see tycoon.
0: Trump as the sort of person who lent himself to, whose profile lent itself to the kinds of work that
2: you guys do? I didn't know much about him. I just knew he was a real estate tycoon. And mm-hmm. so he's a big businessman. So I thought, well, here you go again. We got another so-called billionaire who wants to be president. And, um, you know, that's what we did last time. So I might as well see if there's a, a re-up. You say so-called billionaire. He'd resent that. I don't. He's he sued over that. <laughs> yeah, He's
0: I, sued, sued, yes. I sued sued know he has. I know someone else. I know someone else. Yeah. So you, you you reached out to a prominent Republican. I, I wouldn't know how prominent they are really, but there's yeah, I mean they're in the community. They're mm-hmm. well known person in the community and donors, and they and so talk about how that
2: whole, whole how that unfolded. You know, we've run, I don't know, uh, half a dozen to a dozen different things at a time. So and you're constantly talking to me about possible projects and things like that. And so, you know, it's just one more conversation. But this one took off. Um, but we, the way we do our contracts usually is they're only for a month. Um, and what you hire us for is um, an overall study of your issue. And we give you like a white paper at the end of that it tells you, here's what we found. Here's what we think. And then if you need to know more, you can re-up. Mm-hmm. So, we just figured it would be a one-month look at this guy. We'd pull all the newspaper clippings and his court files and all that sort of stuff. And I also didn't think he would go very far. And so no, when I, you no, took that first month look, what was your conclusion? The most striking thing was the quantity of litigation was so far off the charts. You know, I mean, we've been doing this now for 10 years. I've been in journalism. I was you know, in the, the information business for over 30, I think. I've never seen anything like it. You know, I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits and all kinds of really nasty ones and all kinds of like really just ridiculous little ones where he just wouldn't pay his bills. So that was pretty wild and weird. And then I started noticing that he also seemed to be in business with lots of criminals. And so um,
1: that was like month one. Mm-hmm. I mean, for 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 all the uh, revelations of the dossier, the, the big scoop of thinking, for lack of a better word, you know, it came in that first month when we... Found an old article in the New York Times. That's, that's how secret it was. Um, you know, about this. That's new, what you got the big bucks for? Uh, that's what they get the big bucks for. Yeah. But what we do get the big bucks for um, is doing a methodologically going back to the beginning and trying to recreate the story. And we found, you know, a Russian uh, born emigre to the US who was convicted of multiple crimes in partnership with Donald Trump but with an office in Trump Tower. And Trump seemed to be lying that, about it. There's not yeah. a lot of people running for president, you'd agree, David, that right. have that in their portfolio. Yeah, I would agree.
0: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. So you were working for, ultimately for a newspaper or... It was, a non-profit. Yeah. it was a nonprofit that has a newspaper attached to it. From That had a conservative bent. Hmm. They were anti-Trump. How much of the material that you developed was actually
2: used? Just looking at the public record, you could say, you know, a lot of it sort of... And, and what we say in the book is, I mean, all these things were in the media. And I mean, one of the misconceptions about what we do is that, you know, we can't say we planted that story or that piece of work is from us because we work with reporters. I guess my question is,
0: were you frustrated that there wasn't more rigorous reporting on
1: Trump? Well, Trump was one of uh, many people. 17 candidates. 17 candidates, the most in the history of the Republican primary. So uh, there was a a lot of people chasing a lot of ambulances at that time. So I don't know if frustration is the word. I I mean, to the extent that we were frustrated, it was that the stuff that did come
2: out like seemed to have no real effect. Um, and that, I think, uh, it was has to do with the changing media landscape and the political environment. And things happen so quickly now that the you know, story disappears the day after it comes out. And, and, and what we do talk about is this game theory dynamic in the Republican primaries where anyone who took a poke at Donald Trump, he would retaliate against, and they would start to crater. And so they all wanted to gang up on him. So a lot of these stories came out and they were pretty devastating in the facts. You know, I mean, he's got Coke dealer in the next department to him and you know, there are all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And, um, but no one followed up on it in terms of his opponents.
1: And also no one really gave him a chance. Then he
0: became, it was clear he was gonna become the nominee. Your client went away because now
1: Trump was the nominee of the Republican party and you could have let it drop. The journalism analogy is a good one. You're on a good story uh, and you hadn't written the final pieces in the, um, you know, in the package and you want to continue and figure out where it all goes. So um, you know, we wanted to continue the work. There was also an element of thinking it was important to do. I mean, the, um, We were yeah. pretty convinced at this point that Donald Trump was not a good guy. Uh, and did not deserve to be president. I mean,
2: this is sort of where our journalistic genes kicked in. We're like, this guy is not suitable to be president of the United States. And, you know, um, we never really completely left behind our...
0: So that's an interesting discussion. Is that journalistic genes? I mean, should that be journalistic genes? Um, I mean, I'm not arguing that it shouldn't be, but I I could see someone saying,
2: well, why should journalists decide that someone shouldn't be? I mean, you you could classify that as citizenship, you could classify it as patriotism, but for two old journalists, you know, there's an element just of, as Peter said, we're in the middle of this, we're chasing this guy, he seems like he's a bad guy. Uh, why would we walk away just because our client is going to turn off the speaker? So and you it's a suggest that issue. You, you
0: you argued to move forward, and and the obvious place to go was the Democratic campaign and Hillary Clinton. You Again, were somewhat so- reluctant. You you said you were chained to Bill Clinton through the 90s. Right. You didn't exactly come at this as a a Clinton a Clintonista.
2: So I had staked out a position in 2015 that if Hillary was an omni, we weren't gonna work for her. And it wasn't because I disliked her or disapproved of her policies or any of that. I actually think she's quite competent as Secretary of State and impressive in many, many ways. It is because the Clinton political machine is so scandal-prone. And so, you know, they run, they, the machine they, they created raised so many questions of influence that made me uncomfortable that I just thought we should just steer clear. So how long did it take you to change your mind? Uh, a long time. Uh, well, I mean, they started... I changed know. his
1: mind for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, still
2: the editor-reporter relationship. A little bit, a huh? little bit. Yeah. But, but it was partly informed by my long
1: experience of covering that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, you know. yeah, the, at the end of the day, there wasn't that much of a debate. I'd gone to someone in the Democratic establishment and said, hey, we would like to continue this work if you know someone. Um, And I didn't tell Glenn I'd done that. And when I did, he said, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't that. So
0: uh, how long before the arrows were really you mentioned uh, Satter, the guy who uh, the the Russian uh, uh, who shared office space with Trump with the checkered past, but how and, and was a business partner of his.
1: How long before the arrows were really, in your view, pointing toward Russia? I mean, the, the big event or the, the um, game change, I think, was the, uh, um, the admission of Paul Manafort to the campaign. So Paul Manafort is someone that we had spent a lot of time looking at when we were in Brussels a decade earlier. At the uh, Journal? At the Wall Street Journal. Glenn and his wife had actually done a couple of really Mary important- Mary Jacoby, she's a Mary great is, reporter in her own right. She, she, so they did a, a series of stories on the, the extent to which the Russian political establishment and consulting world was seeking to aid Project Putin. So when Manafort came back, and he was, he was gone from the scene, mm-hmm. We actually Glenn actually found- a, uh, a a court filing in which a process serving this this is in twenty this is in 2016 process server in 20 earlier that year even or 2015 I think it was probably 2015 earlier. couldn't find him that's mm-hmm. how off the map Paul
0: Manafort was because as you discovered he was ducking. that he owed a Russian oligarch. Right, a
2: Russian oligarch with very close ties to Vladimir Putin who couldn't get into the U.S. because he was classified as an organized crime figure.
0: What did you find about Trump's real estate dealings? Trump, he had, around the time of the the financial crash, he was not in good financial shape. How did he revive himself, and how much of that work did you do that contributed to your sense of concern? Obviously, he was loaned money by Deutsche Bank when other people would not. Deutsche
1: Bank uh, why. had been cited for he, Russian money laundering. Correct. And he had, he had sued Deutsche Bank, in fact. So that was a mystery. There was a, another Russian oligarch who doubled the pri- asking price on a Palm Trump Beach Trump had, had a mansion in, in Florida. On sale for about $45 million, and this guy bought it for $95 million, which is an unusual transaction. And you didn't just write it off to good taste? we did not wipe it off to good taste. <laughs> so there's that and, you know, there was another interesting fact that was in Tim O'Brien's book about Trump Tower being one of the few buildings, if not one or rare buildings in New York that allowed anonymous limited liability companies, offshore entities to purchase property, residential property in that. And this spoke money laundering to you guys? Absolutely. Y-
2: yeah, I mean, uh, it raised questions about money laundering, but the I think the broader pattern that probably emerged by, you know, the late winter of 2016 was that this river of foreign money seemed to be flowing into his projects. And then Manafort pops up right in the middle of all that. March, right. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, as so a lot of our work as journalists, and then as consultants, has been around the rise of kleptocracy globally, and the the sort of explosion in political corruption and money laundering and the connection between those two things. And so, you know, it was something that we covered in Brussels. My wife and I uh, and Peter edited all of our stories, so we were all sort of immersed in you know, the politics of Ukraine and natural gas corruption, all these kind of arcane subjects. And then later on, we would do a lot of stories about narcos and other people, or not stories, uh, research projects about narcos and uh, South American politicians buying condos in Miami. And so we had actually developed this skill of looking at the, the records in Florida of real estate to figure out sort of where the money comes from and who's really behind it and that sort of thing. And, and it's an interesting, geeky kind of thing that we were good at. So but we, we spent, saw this yeah, pattern of Russians buying sets, uh, uh, for Soviet Union. To be really clear, I mean, you know, the the, whole, the problem of kleptocracy is common to all of the former Soviet Union because, really, it's a rule of law problem. Which is, you had know, communism was a, a system where you couldn't really survive if you obeyed all the rules, and so everyone learned to not obey any rules. And so when the transited to market economies, you know, you had this ingrained culture of, you know, theft and. Corruption and uh, ignoring the rules, but it was producing a lot more money, and then you want it first thing you do if you make money in the former Soviet Union is try to get it out there out of there
1: not just there, right I mean so in Latin America, the cascade of devaluations that happened in Mexico in '94 brazil98 99 and Russia caused a flight and a, and a flight of capital to the us and funded. A enabling enabling sort of infrastructure of lawyers, bankers, et cetera.
2: So the emerging realization was that he had figured this out mm-hmm. and that he had opened his doors to all comers. And
0: is that when you called, uh, you, you 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 brought in, you had two people. You had Nellie Orr on your staff who was an expert on all of this. She would become significant in, in at least the counter story uh, later. You didn't hire her to do this, but you assigned right. her to it. And then you, you, you went and you retained... Chris Steele and his firm. Now, who was he and how did you know him?
2: So, you know, Peter and I are generalists. We, our specialty is gathering information. But we hire subject matter experts all the time. And so we hire Russian linguists, Spanish linguists, Chinese linguists, um, people who can go to these places or gather records in the native language. Nelly was doing something else for us, and we decided we needed someone who could do open source research. What about Steele? Same. So, I mean, I had known Chris on and off since I left the journal, and it was increasingly apparent by May, that a we were going to have money to keep going, and B that you know we had sort of run the trail dry um, in the u s, and that you know there's only so much Nellie can do sitting in front of a computer, you know we decided we needed some field work
1: yeah you you, you can't uh, actually get answers, and in- Russia turns out to not have a very great Freedom of information act yeah um, stunning, so if you want to. If you, if you want answers from Russia, you need to ask Russian.
0: Uh-huh. And he obviously had a long background in intelligence in Russia, lots of sources there. In June of 2016, he came back with the first report. Part of what he said was the Russian authorities have been cultivating and supporting Republican presidential candidate Trump for at least five years. Source B asserted the Trump operation was both supported and directed by Putin its aim was to sow discord and disunity both within the US itself but more especially within the transatlantic alliance which was viewed as inimical to Russia's interests so a senior russian financial official said that trump operation should uh, be seen in terms of putin's desire to return to 19th century great power politics anchored upon countries' interests rather than the ideal ideals based international order established after world war 2 so uh, this This essentially was what turned out to be the Russian
1: operation that Bob Mueller and his crew exposed in their investigation. That would be our view. I mean, the the Mueller investigation found over 100, at least 100, maybe it was 140 contacts between the Trump campaign and Russian He also said, and you
0: guys have been criticized for this, he also said he could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a conspiracy between the campaign and
2: and the Russians. Well, Chris wasn't writing a newspaper article, nor was it a legal brief. You know, we were working for a client, right? And um, at the time, what we were trying to do was to figure out what was going on and to, um, you know, uh, make sense of it for a client. And so that's very different from what this. The standard this is being held to. No,
0: I understand. I wanted to ask you about that. Explain what this is. This is the dossier in my hand uh, here. It's it's
1: burning in my hand right now. (laughs) I Uh, think it's a printout of the BuzzFeed uh, publication. (laughs) Yeah, it's.
0: But you know, there are things in here that have obviously there are salacious things in here that became emblematic or were made emblematic by the opponents of the whole document. And you've been pummeled not just by opponents of the president, but there are journalists who have gone after this.
1: Particular document
0: in a really aggressive. I mean, way.
1: you can gaslight Chris Steele and the dossier all you want, but the foundational premise of this thing is that there was something going on between Donald Trump and Russia. As far as I know, that's not been disproven. Quite to the contrary, you know, there are a lot. What you're holding in your hand is uh, field reporting, right? This is what people say. It is Chris is a trained identifier of disinformation and counterintelligence effort. So uh, that is not, there's a lot that he's heard and knows that's not in there. He is the intelligence professional. He spent his entire career looking at Russia and sort but of- But you
2: never intended this to be in the public. No, of course, of course not. No, we didn't. The literal answer to your question is, that is a product, uh, it's, a, it's a record of what people told Chris's collectors. Right. And um, in British intelligence, even more than US intelligence, um, they, the premium is on reporting accurately what people say. Um, you're not supposed to fiddle with it and say, this guy said this, but I think he's a liar, right? Mm-hmm. It's one thing to sort, to, to throw out the disinformation that you can spot. But your job is not to only include the things that people say that you think are true. Your job is to say what it was they said.
0: Trump gets elected. Did you know that at that moment, I think you wrote a little bit about this, that there could be stormy waters ahead for you? Definitely. Uh, Yeah. Were you calling the South Bay, whatever it was, where you started (laughs) to see
1: if your job was still open? (laughs) Uh, We knew he was going to come looking for us eventually. You know, Chris thought this was an urgent matter of national security. He's an intelligence professional. We're former journalists. It was his judgment that it was important to actually surface this information, which is why, through an intermediary, he went to John McCain. And took it to the FBI. And took it to the FBI two weeks after that first report you just...
0: And you write that an aide to John McCain shared the document with BuzzFeed, left the room, apparently allowed them to photograph the document... What were your feelings when it came out about it, about the jeopardizing of
2: sources for steel, and about your own future? <clears throat> well, it was a very big day in our lives, obviously, but you know, there was a Up and down thing because when the CNN report came out, the CNN report had been done very carefully by like real pros. It was Carl Bernstein, you know, of Watergate fame and their national security team, and they were very careful about what they reported and what they didn't report, and to emphasize that there was a lot of unconfirmed aspects to it, and they didn't, you know, spill all the details. They said this has been briefed to the president and it's being investigated and taken very seriously because of where it came from. And that all was like to us pretty good journalism. Seemed like whatever it was. An hour or two later, the whole dossier is splashed on the internet by a you know sort of newfangled internet. And you're very quickly
0: outed, and how, in, how, within a day. How was that? How fearful were you for your business? How fearful were you for your safety? I know Steele mm. had to go into hiding.
1: Not as scared as you know a kid in a cage on the U.S.-Mexico border, but you know scared. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that I felt ever really a lot of personal, physical threat, but we knew it was going to be a plumbing operation to discredit the messengers. Because Donald Trump did not want to talk about the underlying truth of the matter, still doesn't.
2: Right. So I mean, by then, right, we had been on to this guy since September of 2015, and you know there were certain truths about Donald Trump that are eternal verities at this point. One is that he's a vicious, vengeful guy. So it doesn't take a genius to think. This came out of your research.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was it's in the New York, York Times. We read it in the New
2: York Times. <laughs> yeah. So. This um, Peter says, uh, you know, there was a lot of kitchen table talk in both of our families about whether we were in physical danger. Um, for a long time, it was really the harassment and all the sort of microscope that you get when you're the subject of a media maelstrom. You know, my kids were getting calls from reporters on their cell phones. Can I talk to your dad? Stuff like that. Dad, it's the Washington Post. They want to talk to you. You know, weird stuff like that. Japanese people calling you in the middle of the night. But um, uh, but, you know, it gradually became apparent as, as Trump sort of kept trying to whip up the hysteria about all this and the propaganda machine really got cranking that it was it was going to cause it could cause people to do something dangerous. And the the Russians weren't the concern. It was like the guy that shot up Comet Pizza. Right. That's what we were worried about. And eventually that's what kind of came to pass. I mean, the the guy, the, the other bomber that sent the bombs to CNN, he had my name in his computer and. We got weird death threats from Trump right wing, you know.
0: What would you have done differently? Not much. Not much. Relative to this dossier? Uh, would you have left out the salacious parts of it?
2: No, because then you're tinkering with the material. So, you know, we are cognizant of who we are. We're, we're ex journalists, right? We don't have any training in national security, counterintelligence, Russian, any of these subjects. That's why we hired Chris. So Chris said, we got to give him the whole thing. And I said, well, wh- why do we got to give him that hotel stuff? And they said, because it, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you worry about if you're in counterintelligence, which is that someone has been compromised. And so I said, well, you're the professional. you know, We didn't want to in- intervene in that. And he's a pretty apolitical person. And we didn't want to have any uh, allegation that we were sort of
1: monkeying with the content for political reasons. We have the dossier you read as of July, end of June 2016. We could have given it to anybody, and we didn't.
0: Yeah, you know what the counter-argument is, that this, it's based on the Peter Strzok conversation where he, or the tax message where he said, well, we've got insurance. There are a number of things that are just, that are woven together in the counter-narrative. Nellie Orr married to Bruce Orr, the Justice Department who was very much in this case. You had hired her,
1: before you were... She's a contractor, by the way.
0: Right. You were involved in a completely different project with a lawyer who uh, ended up at Trump Tower, an apparatchik for the Russians. You were with her that morning before she went over to Trump Tower. You can see where... Sure, Conspiracy theorists can have a field day with that.
2: Right. But if you talk to, like, statisticians, they will tell you that people, human beings, underestimate the frequency of coincidences and that, you know, in, in areas like Russia, there aren't very many experts, right? Most people stopped paying attention to Russia after the Soviet Union fell apart. So, you know, it isn't actually all that surprising that various people have other connections to each other. But that's how you put together a good counterargument. Any defense lawyer will tell you. Well, you write in your epilogue a, a, a real de- a defense of
0: not just the dossier, but the general work. But the, the, the most important thing is that you conclude that uh, the Trump campaign's conspiring with Russia may not be a crime provable in federal court, but it amounts to one of the most significant betrayals in American history. That, at its core, was the warning sounded by fusion and steel in 2016, a warning that remains as urgent today as it was then. Having read your book, I have to ask you, do you believe that the president is compromised? Do you believe that he is an asset of the Russian
2: government? I I I believe that the the president is compromised in one form or another in his relationship with Russia and that it influences his actions. And Saudi Uh, Arabia. And I I would not... And others? Uh, I don't really have the expertise to say whether that makes him an asset because Mueller never of a went into the job. money laundering uh, piece of this. Yeah. Wh- I mean, wh- why was that? We don't really know, but it was deemed to be not within the scope of the criminal investigation, uh, probably in part because it happened before he became president. Prosecutors but, make choices, right? And right. do you
0: think that is is still a live issue for
2: Trump? Yes. Absolutely. I mean. Little did we know as we were writing those words that he was actually out doing the same thing again. So, you know, um, we feel a little prophetic in having taken what seemed like a fairly bold position on all of
1: this, but. You're talking we, about his U- Ukraine. Uh, yeah. So well, he's I negotiating. Mean, it, while we were collecting some of this information, he was negotiating to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. <laughs>
2: which mm-hmm. I mean, he lied about. For the last three years, the Trump media has ridiculed the idea that this guy would ever have colluded with a foreign government to win an American presidential election. But, you know, I, one of the things we knew when we, you know, sort of find ourselves is this is not the first time that something like this has happened, right? Bill Clinton had a scandal like this. I covered it. I broke a bunch of stories. So, A, it's not that surprising that an American candidate would get help from a foreign government and welcome that. Um, and B, I mean, most obviously, Trump is capable of that because he did it. You
0: started an organization uh, called the Democracy Integrity Integrity Project in part to, um, continue this work, but not just here, uh, also in Europe and elsewhere where the Russians are active. What is the status of this? You did with Dan Jones, who is now famous in his own right. Uh, so so Dan the,
1: actually started the the group. We 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 helped conceive of it, I suppose. Uh huh. But he uh, he we at, should out, He was in, in
0: the movie The Report. Is he's the star character? Adam Driver played him. I won't ask you guys who should play you when your movie comes out. But is that a going concern? Absolutely. And are the things that it is uncovering
2: a going concern of yours? Absolutely. We don't talk about our ongoing current work and things like that. But the group was conceived because the real fear. Which has now been realized is that there is this wave of meddling by autocrats and dictators in Western democracies And it's not just happening here. It's happening all over Europe It's happening in the Philippines all around the world. It's not just the Russians It's the Turks and the Chinese
1: and it's open season on free elections that should really scare everyone There's a line in the dossier that says the Chinese are super content for the focus on Russia because of everything they're doing with Trump
2: And the the level of manipulation by sinister powers of our information ecosystem and our free democratic systems of press is off the charts. I mean, it is really petrifying. Do you anticipate being involved in this campaign? We're not going to be working for a presidential candidate. I mean, I don't, I don't. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. Uh, What we are, uh, you know, committed to doing, whether we get paid or not, is to fighting disinformation, fighting uh, sort of illegal foreign attempts to corrupt our system and the systems of other democratic countries. I mean, you know, that's, again, where we get to the point of, is it because we're journalists or is it because we're Americans or, you know, why? But we're we're there. Well, let me give you a business tip.
0: When you start a sentence saying we'll do it whether we get paid or not, you're probably not going to get paid. (laughs) So... Glenn Simpson and, uh, and Peter Fritsch, thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks. Sir. The book is a uh, time in progress, and we, we will monitor future chapters. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz, the show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.